Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm sitting with Emma Gibbons, a British national living in Australia with her boyfriend, who about seven years ago I bumped into in Indonesia and our paths have crossed multiple times around the world in very cool places, mostly surf destinations, and getting to know over the years and some of the adventures she's taken by herself with her boyfriend. I found her story super inspirational, interesting, and thought I'd bring her on and get to know her a little bit better. So with that said, Emma, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, good to be here. <laughs> We're happy to have you. And I'm just so excited to kind of shed some light on one of your most recent trips. We'll, we'll go through a lot of them, but the most recent one you took with your boyfriend was driving from what was it, England down to Morocco and deep into the Sahara Desert. Is that correct? Yep. So we, we started out in the UK um, because that was where it was easier to buy a van um, because my family lives here. And then we sort of jumped down to the Hossega region uh, through the north of Spain, um, spent a fair bit of time in Portugal and then headed down into Andalusia, which is the southern southern area of Spain before jumping across on the ferry to Morocco. Morocco. And um, Dakla was definitely probably the highlight of the trip. And that was that was the journey where we sort of took a bit of a punt and headed down for three days into the Sahara. So um, really exciting. It sounds like it. I followed you a little bit on Facebook and some of the photos you sent back, the waves and just your overall experience seemed amazing. And I kind of want to talk a little bit in the detail about how you plan this trip and just the logistics of getting this kind of trip underway, like financially speaking. And then I don't know, like how, how much time did you map out that you were going to need to do this drive? Um, it's a, it's a, when you live in, in Europe, it, it's a kind of common trip that people do. It's a sort of almost rite of passage for those that surf, um, to do that journey. So it's a fairly self-explanatory journey in the sense of there's not really any mapping needed. You basically follow the coastline and it's just however long you want to travel for, however long you can afford to travel for. Um, we planned it in terms of seasons. So, uh, September, October is a really good time to be in France. And then you just follow those swells down, uh, until you sort of hit November where anywhere in Portugal and Morocco is going to be firing until about February, March, and then things start to quieten down. So you're, you're sort of following the, after the summer, um, the slightly warmer water and then of course the the rise of the winter swells and it just made sense for us if we were going to do it that we would just do the whole season and I was incredibly lucky that uh, Nathan was actually able to earn the money for us to do this trip. Um, he went and did three months in the mines in Western Australia which was pretty tough for him and um, I did a little bit of work in Newcastle that wasn't really earning us much money but was hopefully something that I would have in the future. And when we came to England, it worked really well because my family was able to have us whilst we searched for a van. 
And we really knew what we were looking for. On actually not too much research, a lot of it is, it is common sense. You know, I needed to do a bit of work on the road. So we needed, um, to be able to charge laptops. So that was one of the big things. We needed to be able to sleep well because we were traveling for a long time. We needed to be able to cook and we needed something that was going to be fairly reliable because of how far we were traveling once we got to Morocco. Um, we couldn't be dealing with a van that was going to be, I guess, breaking down in the middle of nowhere. Uh, especially with language barriers. Um, so yeah, we did our, we did a bit of research and then we, I guess we got lucky, um, and also made some sensible decisions and got pretty much the most incredible van ever. But, you know, things did go wrong. The van actually broke down when we picked it up and it cost us 500 pounds to get it fixed. So that was, that was a bit of a shock, but it was, we never had any problems after that. So. Um, that was lucky. So the whole trip was planned based around you essentially living in a van for the whole duration of the adventure. Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. That was it, our home on wheels. All right. And how much did you save up for this adventure, if you don't mind me asking? Um, so I think we put aside 20 grand Aussie, which mm-hmm. would have at the time been 10 grand UK. Our van cost us three and a half pounds, three three and a half thousand pounds, which we actually, the beauty of buying a van and then selling it is that if you're traveling for six months, as long as nothing too bad happens to it during that journey, we were able to recoup the money we spent on it. So essentially, we didn't actually pay for our transport and accommodation for the entire trip. Oh, lovely. That sounds super convenient. Yeah. But it's so you, you spent, what was, what would that be? You're the math genius. That's like, what a third? Well, of- we would have probably spent um, about fifteen grand Aussie in six months. I think we did have some left over. Um, I'm not a hundred percent because Nathan holds the purse strings. Um, but it, and that and that you know we had some expensive parts of the trip, namely actually being in the UK and getting everything ready for the trip. Wow, that's really cool. And as a female traveling with your boyfriend, did you feel safe pretty much the whole time? Was it difficult, you know, for your relationship being stuck in a van for six months together? How, what was that like? Uh, we had probably had the most arguments we ever have had in, in our relationship, but it tended to be about silly things like map reading and parking and parking up for the night on uneven ground and arguing over whose spot was uh, more level. Um, so it tended to just be sort of scrappy little things, nothing major. But Nathan and I's relationship, we, we spend a lot of time together when we're together. And then we also spend a lot of time apart. So we actually are very used to sort of being under each other's feet because, you know, I'll be at the beginning of our relationship there were, for two periods of time. I was away for six months. So and then we'd be together sort of every minute of every day for three months or six months. So it wasn't too much of a shock to the system to be living in the van. Um, obviously you have different ideas about what you want out of a trip. So Nathan was much more surf focused than I was. I, I guess I would have probably liked to have done a bit more trekking and hiking and, um, but these are things that I can do independently. And we were lucky that we were getting good sleeps because we actually had a double mattress in the back of the van, which is pretty cool. 
That is cool. I we spoke in a, a previous episode to a couple who's sailing around the world, Nick and Teresa, and they express some of the same sort of close encounter, like close proximity and, um, challenges that they have living on a boat. They've been on a boat for the last fifteen months, uh, sailing around the world, and she has yeah. uh, a support group that she participates in on Facebook for women who are sailing around the world because sometimes it gets so tough that they need that female support to. Uh, I guess, help him get through some troubled moments. <laughs> I guess you're even more isolated there. You know, at least we can jump out of the van and go speak to other people. Yeah, of course. I'd like to get more into detail on your Morocco portion of the trip because, you know, for Europeans or non-Europeans, when you do get to Europe, it, it's straightforward. There are language barriers, but it's not so third world that you find yourself completely out of your element. And I think I'd like to get more into detail of like when you finally did cross the strait with your car and you, you're driving now with your vehicle through Morocco, like what's that like? For me, um, that, that was when the trip really came to life. Um, I've always preferred the slightly harder traveling. Um, I think it's more rewarding. I think your senses are heightened. I think you're experiencing totally different things. You're, you're far much further removed from the norm when you're traveling in places like Morocco. And it really is sensory overload. There's just, I have been to Morocco before, um, actually on three separate occasions, but never in a van. Um, and I've never covered anywhere near what we, the distances, um, we covered and the places we covered and the different people we saw than, than what we did in the van. But it's, the excitement level is a hell of a lot higher. We also got a lot better waves and a lot more consistent, which also, you know, it all adds to it. But, you know, you're going and buying your foods from markets, your chickens are being killed in front of you, which for me, I didn't particularly want to see. But, you know, it's a totally different experience. And you really just have to embrace it. And I've always found that almost the harder the traveling is, the more excited I get. So for me, like Morocco is where my heart was, you know, somewhere like Portugal, I can imagine myself living um, somewhere like Morocco. That's the place that you just you really sink your teeth in. So you really don't know what's going on half the time. You're you're trying to find your way around. But people are really friendly. And it's funny how it's harder to communicate, but at the same time easier because people People understand what you need on a much more basic level when you're like, we're trying to find food or somewhere to sleep or, you know, somewhere to buy water or petrol. And people will just help you on the street. And we never had any problems. Um, my French also got a bit better, which was cool because, you know, needs when you when you're forced to speak a language, because it's literally the only way you can communicate suddenly or remembering your GCSE French from when you were 15, 16 at school. So for me, that was good fun. And we, we didn't hit many real problems. We, we made a couple of bad decisions during the trip. But other than that, I think it, it was fairly plain sailing. Um, and definitely, definitely 100% the best part of the trip. And we were there for two, two and a half months. So a good portion of the trip was spent in Morocco. Oh, wow. Can you talk a little bit more about bad decisions? What What is a bad decision that you made and why would you consider a bad decision? Um, so probably the first one that comes to mind would be anyone that's traveled in Morocco for any length of time or maybe even not people that have just driven in Morocco. 
do not drive at night. And it seems a fairly simple thing. Well, you know, don't drive at night. Okay. When you sort of make a decision to go from A to B, but you're not 100% sure where B is, the advice would be don't do it until daylight. And I guess we were being impatient and we had a friend at A point B, which we weren't sure whether we'd reach or not. And we left a bit too close to dark thinking that we'd make it a good chunk of the way and thinking that we'd find somewhere to sleep on the way, which unfortunately didn't happen. And it meant that we were driving on some pretty dangerous roads in the pitch black, you know, nearly getting pushed off the roads by, by lorries, people with no lights, people overtaking. I mean, it's, it's some of the most dangerous roads in the, in the world and certainly some of the most dangerous roads I've traveled on. And I've, dri- I've driven around Indonesia on a motorbike and I would say driving at night in Morocco is 10 times worse. And we just got stuck. We went down this tiny little road in search of somewhere I'd been, you know, six or seven years ago. And we didn't really know where we were going. And we were getting deeper and deeper into this sort of undergrowth and these small villages. And we, you know, at night, it, you don't feel so welcome. It, you just get stared at. And there's only men out on the streets. And, you know, there's people drinking and you're driving into these communities which may or may not be used to people driving through. You know, we didn't know whether we were on the right road or not. And we sort of got about 20 minutes, 25 minutes into it and just thought, this is crazy. Like, we've no idea how far we are from the coast. We've no idea how far we are from this place that I remember from when I was younger. So we turned around and we had to drive for another two hours to get to the next big town where we knew there might be somewhere to sleep. So we arrived, I, I can't even think what time it was, at this French-run um, caravan park in the uh, centre of uh, Tisnet, which is it's the Silver City, I think the nickname of it is. It's not on the coast. And it was just over halfway to our destination. And the relief when we arrived was just, I think Nathan and I just, <laughs> we slept so well that night because... Just the energy, like having that bad energy of just worrying and spending that entire car journey, just like, oh my God, what are we going to do if we don't find somewhere? Like, are we going to have to sleep on the side of the road? Which is just such a no no. But yeah, that would have been the worst decision. And that was probably the most uncomfortable I felt probably the whole trip. Wow. What, what's the biggest concern aside from? Obviously, having cars coming at you without headlights on that dark of a road. I mean, are you worried about being stopped by fake police officers and being robbed? Like, is there drug traffickers like there is in Mexico? It's definitely not as you don't get that same fear that you would get somewhere like Mexico. I mean, I think in Morocco, and I'm definitely saying this isn't always the case, but mainly the worst that will probably happen is you'll have an accident or you'll be robbed. You know, it's it's not great, but it's also not the end of the world. And um, it certainly sets you back. So it's you want to avoid it at all costs. Mm-hmm. But for me, the main concern would really be being uncomfortable where we were sleeping. Um, we did have another point in the trip where we slept somewhere, which I didn't sleep the entire night listening to every single noise outside. Mm-hmm. And that you really just want to avoid because... There was a stage um, around Tagazoo, which is now totally overcrowded with a, a zillion surf camps. 
but people used to free camp a lot around there and it's now illegal. And the reason that Morocco has made a lot of free camping illegal is they can't stop people robbing um, those traveling in vans. What they can do is stop those in the vans putting themselves in harm's way and that reduces the crime. So that's why they start patrols and, and controlling where people sleep. But, you know, things get a bit sketchier when you don't know where you are and you're, you're somewhere where you've no idea where you're going to wake up in the morning, essentially, wherever you pull over at night. It doesn't, it may seem fine then, but then you'll wake up in the morning and realize you're parked next to something a bit sketchy. So, and you know, once, if you get robbed and you don't have any money or something's taken from the van that's essential for you, your trip, you're, you're stuck, you're stranded. Yeah. So definitely something to be avoided. I mean, we really, we're both well-traveled, so, you know, we're fairly streetwise, but we're not, you know, we try not to be stupid. And I think that drive was a little bit on the stupid side. Okay. Was there, was there any other ones that you feel like would probably be worth sharing for anybody else considering such a drive? Um, don't pull over at the side of the road and sleep in an empty field. That's probably not one of the cleverest things we've done. Mm -hmm. And if, if you know that it's somewhere that's patrolled and they're going to move you on, have an idea of where you're going to move on to, because if people move you on at 10 o'clock at night and you haven't got a plan B, you're driving around at 10 o'clock at night trying to find somewhere to sleep. That's sound advice for sure. Did you have any trouble with police, like pulling you over and wanting bribes from you? No, that's actually been cleaned up a lot from when we, uh, when I traveled in Morocco before. It was a real problem. Like I got pulled over daily. Um, I actually, on the worst day, I got pulled over four times in one day, in one journey. And, um, they would, sometimes they'd pull you over for no reason and just try and make you give them money. Other times they would find opportune spots to park the police. So where the center of the road was marked with, um, solid lines, meaning you can't overtake. And it suddenly goes from dotted lines to solid lines. They'd be hidden in a bush around that corner mm -hmm. waiting to catch them. But I usually pleaded that I didn't understand what they were saying and that I didn't speak French or I didn't have any money um, or I needed my money for something else. Or I just argued for so long they got so bored of it and let me go. But we, we really came prepared for that and found almost none of it um the only problem we had is we had uh we bought the van off um two other travelers an aussie and english couple who had been traveling for a similar length of time as us and we'd literally bought this van straight off them when they returned to england straight off the ferry pretty much and um the people that had had it previous to them all of the electrics were nailed in a box, which meant that we couldn't get to the rear light. So when the rear light broke, we had no way of replacing it. So when you're driving at night or you've got a police car behind you, you can't brake because if they see that your light's out, you're in trouble. And we did get pulled over and threatened with all kinds of things at one point. Um, and then we don't really know what happened, but the guy misunderstood something I said, and I think he thought I was a lawyer. So he went from threatening us. He found a wine bottle in the side of the van because we put it there so that it wouldn't spill. But of course it was on the driver's side. Nathan was in barefoot. Our light was out. Something else was missing in our documentation and he was absolutely going for us. 
And then he asked us what we did. And I said, event manager. And for some reason, we think he thought I said something to do with being a lawyer. And we went from sort of being totally on the back foot, like not knowing what we were going to do because it was impossible to change the light to the guy going, have your money back. You're a great support for your partner. Off you go. And, and we just <laughs> amusedly drove off looking at each other like, what the hell just happened? How did that go from like, oh my God, we're in so much trouble to we're driving off merrily with our bribe money being handed back to us. So, you know, it did happen, but the, actually this would be a pretty good tip for anybody that does decide to drive down into the Sahara. They have checkpoints the entire way down that road. And you're stopped at a, like, we must have been stopped probably 10, 10 times during that journey. And every time they stop you, they want all your information. So they want your visa stamp. They want your passport photo page. And the best thing to do, this was something passed on to us by other travelers, was just take a shitload of photocopies of both pages in your passport of the visa and the um, photo page. And all they'll do is take those. And they write your information on the back, like where you're staying the night. And I think the reason they're doing those patrols is that the Taliban, so we're talking a little while back, were snatching people from those roads and um, using them for ransom money to raise money for their campaigns. And Morocco sort of jumped in on this pretty quickly, partially to do with trying to own the Sahara and sort of stake their claim on it. They put patrols down the entire road. So people come through, we hand them their passport details. So they know where we are the whole way through our journey. They know where we're sleeping. They know where we slept the night before. So if we were to go missing at any point, they would be able to track our progress down the road. So it's, it's a, that road runs all the way through to Mauritania, um, which, you know, you've got these huge lorries traveling up and down carrying cargo. So it's a very well used road. Um, and that really, really helped us. Um, and like, I don't know what we'd have done if we didn't have those photocopies. So, um, it's a bit, but also it's for our safety. And, and it did feel like that. And everyone was so friendly. Um, we never felt intimidated by the police. Um, so it was a totally different experience to what I'd had previously in Morocco. They've definitely, I think it's come from the king, but it's definitely leave the tourists alone. Wow, that's amazing. That's some sound advice too. Thank you for sharing those tips. Um, what would you do with your car when you would go surfing? Would you just pull up to a spot, lock it up and go surf, not really worried about it getting broken into? It's not that we wouldn't worry. It was more that, you know, we didn't have a choice. <laughs> like we had to leave the van to go surfing, but we just tried to be sensible about it and always shut the curtains so that it wasn't, you couldn't look into the van and see what was in there because most of the thefts were opportunist. So let's say somebody looked through the window and saw both our laptops sitting on the side of the bench, then they'd be like, well, this is a sure thing, you know, might as well sort of break in and grab them. And we would, um, we actually did use lock boxes, which um, there was very mixed views on because essentially what a lock box says is, hey, if you can get into this, you've got a whole vehicle because they've got the keys to drive the vehicle. They just need to get through and they're very capable of doing that. Um, so we just hid it right under the, the van. So Nathan would sort of lie on his back and 
scurry underneath and find somewhere to lock it so that the lockbox wasn't visible at least and we try and do it when no one was looking um it worked for us it didn't work for everybody we know plenty of people that were broken into but actually the majority were fine um of people we met and you just you know you worry a bit when you first get there but then you just stop worrying about it you you just follow your sort of daily protocol and and hope for the best. Um, so we're pretty lucky that we didn't have any problems. But there's a lot of problems in Spain and Portugal. Um, so it's not like we suddenly hit Morocco and we're like, shit, we need to be more safety conscious. Mm-hmm. There wasn't opportunities like, say, just putting your car next to a restaurant, buying a few drinks or whatever and saying, watch my vehicle. It was always just kind of you're out in the open and leaving your vehicle kind of wide open while you went surf. It just depended where we were. Like sometimes we were parked in caravan parks or they weren't really caravan parks. They were sort of basic um, places where you would pay to park your vehicle and there would be a parking guy and there was a toilet. And that was sort of, Mm. we would either free camp or do that. And in Morocco, it was a lot cheaper. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that in Morocco and Spain and in Spain and Portugal or France, we tended to free camp the whole way through unless we were desperate for showers. And yeah, so we and most of the time you were safe. And if you were driving to surf at a spot, then a lot of the times it was pretty remote and there's not much you could do about it. But you're actually often safer in more remote places because there's just less people driving past and checking you out. Whereas if you're somewhere that's a little bit more built up and there's more people wandering around, then, but yeah, we didn't, it, that, didn't really we didn't go to places and think we need to find somewhere that we can park next to what so did you score it sounds like you got some good waves what was was that that like where you got the best waves of your trip um once we got down to morocco we got much more consistent waves so we were getting decent waves every day almost and we had some really crazy fun sessions with not many people out and we also did get a few epic sessions, like Nathan got Safi, um, which is one of the sort of, I guess, one of the best waves in Morocco, if not the best. I know some people will say Anchor Point, um, but Safi, it's it's a bigger, better square barrel. And Nathan got that with four people on his birthday, which is literally unheard of. Um, so we were really lucky with that, and it was really good the next day as well, but a lot more crowded. And we got um, Cap Sim for two and a half weeks. And that's really probably my favorite section of the trip because we really just, you know, set down a few routes. Because when you're living in a van, you're moving all the time because there's no reason for you to stay if if, if the conditions change and you know they're going to be better somewhere else, you move. Um, but when we went to Cap Sim, we stayed with a family up on the hill um, and you're walking 45 minutes to the wave, but you're there and you, you, you just remain on the top of this hill with a bunch of, um, other sort of travelers that have been coming there from all over Europe for years, some of them with their children. And it's, you get a, a little bit of a routine going and the wave itself is just so much fun. And the family that we were parked in front of, you were paying something like a dollar and you got to park in their land and they were, they were farmers, I think previously, but now made the money from having vans park in their front yard. And we got to use their toilet. Um, and that was really good. And we were only 20 minutes drive from Essaouira where we could get literally every, everything we needed. 
So every sort of three or four days we'd go and get water and, and food and anything else we might need. So that was a really cool part of the trip and really, really fun lives. Sounds special. Really cool. Um, I'm anxious to hear more about your decision to go deep, like deep into the Sahara. Was that random? Did you have that plan or was that just like, we're here, we might as well get, we'll go down there. And can you explain a little bit about the geography of it? Cause it's still Morocco, but you're getting closer to the neighboring country South. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically I'm, I can't, I'm not a hundred percent sure of, of the exact politics of the Sahara, but essentially it sits on the coastal side. It sits between Morocco and Mauritania. And, um, there's quite a few pe- different sort of countries that are trying to snatch bits of it. There's, there's a band of it that's sort of totally unruled, um, that sits just inland. And Morocco have really tried to stake their claim on it. Every town you drive into has Moroccan flags literally stamped all the way in as you're entering um, to each town. And we actually had a bit of a joke about it with another couple we met, and they really aptly named it the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. You'd drive in and there'd be this sort of grand entrance to this village. And you're like, wow, this must be a pretty nice place. You've got these this sort of fancy I don't really know how to describe it it's just a, the entrance you can imagine if you're driving into a town and it's got flags up either side and it's well manicured and there's statues or trees and palm trees lining this this road and then you get there and it's the most derelict town you've been the entire journey so you've got this total mismatch of all the money been put into the driveway into it and that's mm-hmm. where the nickname came from, you know, <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. where the Moroccan flags were staked all the way along. Um, so I don't know if they were developed by the Moroccan side or where that really came from. We never really got to the bottom of it. So they seem to be the most um, prevalent sort of ownership on on the Sahara. But it, it does actually have Spanish speaking parts. So there was a point when we got through some villages where people were yelling at us in Spanish, you know, and we're thinking, what? It was French just in the last village. So I think there was some ownership of Spanish land through throughout the Sahara. Um, and the reason that we traveled down was because Nathan and I, we, of course, every time you do a trip, you want to push it a little bit further. You want to do something that's a bit different. And you want to try and find something that not everyone's found. I mean, obviously the dream is to go somewhere and there'd be no one there, or you at the very least want to find somewhere that hasn't been sort of really tapped into on the tourist trail. And Dakla, we really didn't know much about it. We just looked on a map. And when you look at it on a map, you think there's got to be something there. There's, there really has got to be something there. And we tried to do some research. We tried to sort of speak to people and find out information. And we just got really, really mixed vibes about it. You know, people are saying, don't do it. Like, it's really dangerous road. You're going to need water. You're going to need petrol. You're going to need to be really careful. Um, you know, there's bandits. There's everything you can imagine. And then others, you know, one of the couples that we actually did the journey with had met an old uh I think it was Dutch couple, um, like older Dutch couple, retired couple who had done the journey in their Winnebago 
And they said it was perfectly safe. And you're thinking, how are we getting these totally different views on it? And as Nathan says, as soon as someone tells me not to do anything, that's when I decide, right, we're doing it. <laughs> so it really, it was in our minds, in the back of our minds, as something that we were considering doing at some point. And then it happened quite suddenly because we were at this spot where we were getting really, really fun waves. Um, but the conditions changed and they they were changing for a period of time. So we either had to go further north, as in back north, or we had to take a punt and go south. And we sort of ummed and about it for probably half a day. And then the decision almost just made itself for us because if we were going to do this journey, it had to be now because we couldn't go three days south later in the trip because we'd have too far to travel north. You know, we already had to get through Morocco, France, Spain and Portugal to get back to the UK um, for Nathan's flight back. So it kind of made sense in terms of timing and the swell that was hitting wasn't going to be perfect for up north. So we were going to be battling with a bunch of people who'd been dealing with small swell in imperfect conditions, or we could take a punt and just go, we're not missing anything amazing. Let's just go south. So we just sort of talked to this other couple who had also been having similar ideas and they agreed to come with us. And that was awesome. Like it, it really made a difference having someone else with us. And they're a really cool couple. They're an Aussie couple who um, we then spent quite a bit of time with. And so we just literally woke up in the morning and, and headed off and hoped for the best. <laughs> and it, it took us three days and we really, driving. um, I think we did about four hours on the first day, eight on the second and maybe four on the third. So sort of half day, full day, half day. So a fair bit of driving, especially in a van. It's not like you're in a super comfy car. <laughs> so you do, you do get leg ache and you know that especially when you're doing the full days driving, you know, you've got to keep going because you need to get to your destination before it gets dark because it's even more un unknown once you hit the Sahara. Now, are you driving through sand? Like, what's the road like? Is it paved or is it a sand road? No, no. Um, this was, again, something that we really didn't know what we were going to get. You know, people were telling us that the conditions of the road were terrible. Um, it was tarmac road. Big sections of it, um, the tarmac at the edges of the road had kind of fallen away, so it meant that you couldn't really fit two vehicles. So one of you would have to go off the road and you've got these huge trucks traveling at breakneck speed with literally, they don't give a crap about anybody else on the road. You get out the way when they're coming. So that could get a little bit full on at times. And, you know, you know, when they're coming so close to you, that the vehicle almost veers away from some of the, sort of the, the displaced um, air from these vehicles coming past you. But really, other than that, the road was fine. Um, it was a pretty straight road. I don't remember having any problems with navigation. I think it was pretty clear where we were going. I, I actually did a lot of the driving. Nathan tended to do sort of all the day to day driving. But when it came to long distance, I was a big fan of sort of getting in the van and doing my bit and sort of powering through until I just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> so I didn't, I wasn't too worried about it, but we did, you know, you did have to have your wits about you at, at certain points. Um, and when we got there, you know, you've been driving through, it wasn't desert, desert. We were kind of expecting sort of white slash yellow sand and sand dunes. And it wasn't that 
it was more sort of very sparse, gorsy, flat, you know, you're driving and nothing changes. Um, and then we hit parts sort of which were like really red rocks and you're sort of winding through. And that could be like we passed a group of bandits, you know, with their Kalashnikovs and bandanas pulled over their faces with just their eyes showing. And you're thinking, thank God, we've got a second van with us. And, you know, they came. We could see them driving from a, a, like quite far off. And we're like, oh, my God, why are these guys coming at us? And they just waved as they went past. And you're like, this is just a different world. But you can imagine as if we were a van on our own, it would have been a little bit scarier. But, you know, you have the security of a second group of people, which was cool. Um, and I guess then then it was sort of the anticipation of what we were going to get when we arrived. We had no idea about how that swell was going to translate down there and what the winds were going to be doing. And we we got to this place, which was, it could not have fitted more differently than the surrounding areas. You're sort of driving through sparse, sort of fairly poor areas, um, and you hit this white sand, blue ocean lagoon, and you're driving out onto this spit of land that you, we, it was so much bigger than we were expecting. So the spit of land comes off the mainland and then sort of at a, a 90 degree angle turns and runs sort of parallel to the mainland. So it's a really originally shaped piece of land. And we were driving along it thinking, Oh my God, we're here. We're here. This is crazy. And then there's so much more traffic. There's so many more people than we were expecting. And it turns out it's a really big kite surfing area. So there were actually a few resorts, um, but we sort of were driving along. Okay, we need to get to the other side. The waves are going to be on the other side. And Nathan goes, go down this track. So we turned and turned down this track, drove across this bit of land and hit the ocean. And we're sort of at a left and right point. And then Nathan goes, oh, my God, look. And there's this reeling right point with like, I think it was about 10 camper vans parked along it. And it was just that kind of moment of, oh, my God, we made it. And, oh, my God, there's waves. <laughs> so that was a pretty cool moment in the trip. And you can imagine we were completely exhausted by the time we got there. And we really, you know, it, it surpassed what we expected, which was really cool. That's incredible. So you actually didn't even know if there were going to be waves that when you got there. You were just kind of taking a shot in the dark. Well, we'd heard that there were waves down there, but we just didn't, we didn't know whether the conditions we were traveling down in were right for it. We knew that you needed massive swells because further north than there, you've got um, the Canaries. So that blocks a lot of the swell that hits a lot of the Saharan coastline. So, but by the time you get down to Dakla, I think, um, there were, it could come up, the, the swell could get past and, we didn't, we just, we'd heard whispers that there was, there were waves down there. And, you know, it's not going to be the way it is forever. There's already a European group of people that are building a, a surf camp right on that point. Um, so I think in the next couple of years, that place is going to completely change. It's, it's been on the um, radar for kite surfers because it's a very windy place. And you've got obviously that lagoon with the really flat water. Um, so they tend to sort of, when the wind's not good, drive across and surf the other side. So, but yeah, we realized actually that more people were onto it than we, than we probably expected, but not enough for us to feel like, 
okay, we haven't found that little secret haven. Like it still felt like a, a spot to be enjoyed. I mean, I almost, you know, I almost feel bad talking about it, but I guess it's, it's on the radar now and, and not everybody wants to make that three day journey. You know, it's, it's a long way to go. It's very windy. You know, we got there, we got our six days, the wind picked up so much that, you know, we were literally in our vans and we left and it's inconsistent. So you have to be prepared to get down there and potentially get nothing. Um, or maybe one or two days. We, I think we just got really, really lucky. That's incredible. What an adventure. So you stayed how many days there? And um, we probably spent seven nights. And then you drove straight back up and were you like just gunning it the whole way back to England or did you, were you able to surf all the way back up too? No, no, we, we, we just left as soon as the, the, the conditions changed. And, and that's when we sort of headed up towards, um, Capsim and, and Safi. So we knew we had plenty of time to surf, um, in Morocco still. And, um, once we got our waves and once it started getting close to the time that we needed to head back, I think we took a week to do the final journey to, to head from Morocco back up to the UK. So we did a hell of a lot of driving in that final, um, week. Fortunately, we, we'd made some, um, pretty good friends down in Dakla. So we went to visit those guys in Portugal because that's where they lived. Um, which was a really good sort of break up to the journey and kind of felt like catching up with old friends, even though they were very much new friends. But no, we got plenty of time to surf in Morocco after that. And we also did probably my favorite, um, inland, uh, part of the journey. We went up to, uh, Chef Shawan, which, Everybody that's done a lot of traveling in Morocco that's been into a lot of the different towns and cities will say, go to Chefchaouen. And there's a very good reason. It's one of the coolest cities. If you've ever seen photos of Morocco with all the walls painted blue, that's Chefchaouen. So photographically, it's incredibly, like it's a very visually interesting place. It's, it's sort of nestled up in the mountains between two, so there were several peaks. So it's, it's the opposite of, of what we were doing down in Dakla. Like we were driving up into the mountains. It was actually quite cool. There was greenery everywhere. Um, the colorings were just totally different. There were just, it was the farmland and just stunning, stunning green mountainous landscape. Um, so that was a real juxtaposition to what we'd been doing the, for the rest of the two months in Morocco. Um, so we just had a really like, we just mooched around and ate out and wandered around the soup. So, um, anyone that goes to Morocco, I hundred percent recommend Chef Shawan. Oh man, that sounds incredible. I can't wait to go there myself. How much money do you need to have in your bank account to feel comfortable to leave your odd jobs and go out on a big adventure? Um, that really depends on how long we're going for and where we're going. So if we just wanted to go to Indonesia, you know, if we saved up about five, five grand Aussie, that'd get us at least two months. And if we were not moving around too much, much, we could probably stretch that out quite a bit further. Um, it's all to do with how much you're moving and what you want out of the trip. If you want to start doing something where you're moving a lot, that's going to cost more. If you're going somewhere that's not third world, again, that's going to cost more. If you're living in a van, that's cheaper. So it just, you know, sometimes you're going in and, and you'll think, well, I'll go and find a job when I'm there. Yeah, that's, it's kind of open ended. The more money you have, the longer you can travel for, <laughs> the further you can go, the more places you can visit. And I think it's more that, it's rather than the money 
the the trip dictates how much you have to have. It's more when we want to go, it's whatever money we've managed to save will dictate what trip we do, I guess, is probably the way we think about it. And then how are you making your money right now? So um, I am now going through the Australian visa process and I have working rights. So I have quite a few different jobs. Um, <laughs> I have, I manage a um, surfer from Newcastle. Um, well, she's actually South African that has lived in Newcastle since she was, I think, 10, 10 or 12, um, called Philippa Anderson. Um, her brother is Craig Anderson, um, the, as people obviously know, very famous free surfer. And, uh, but Philippa works in the contest area. So she's, she's competing to get onto the world tour and is currently four spots off qualifying for the Women's Wales Tour. So it's pretty exciting. I've been working with her for probably nearly two years now. Um, so that's been really cool. Um, I also, um, this year I'm the contest, event contest manager for Surfest, which is in February, which is, uh, Newcastle six star QS women's and men's event plus a bunch of, I think they have the pro juniors and also some other more locally, um, run events. And, um, just as my day to day, like just having the money to pay the bills and, um, but, you know, food money to enter, follow a lot of my other passion projects, which cost me money. Um, I nanny two afternoons a week, which is something I never thought I'd do. I set up weddings in the wine region mainly, um, which is an hour from Newcastle and also up and down the coast in different beautiful venues, which is actually pretty cool, but also something that's really not something I would have ever done before. And, um, I pick up a few shifts at a really cool kids shop. So. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing lots of little different things and I enjoy all of them. And I think, you know, that's the key to sort of keeping yourself happy. You know, I'm able to do my other passion projects like uh, working with Philippa and my art uh, and also following my um, yoga teaching. And uh, obviously, most importantly, I have time to surf because I have a lot of daytime free which um, is the way I kind of engineered it uh, so that, you know, I'm working afternoons and I'm not working full days all the time. And if I am working full days, it's weekends when everybody's surfing and it's so crowded, you don't want to surf anyway. So um, I don't know. It seems to work for me at the moment. They've all given me the flexibility to come home for Christmas to be with my family. And that's also really important. I don't know. I went from, from being sort of mentally having to do things one way and I found it quite hard to sort of step out of that rat race, step out of, of the molds that I felt that I'd been sort of folded into. And I'm happy. Like I, I can, I can actually say I'm genuinely happy. I do stuff that I enjoy and I, and I have time to do things that I love. Um, so I think you just have to work towards, work towards that. Um, and I will work on it every day. I have a life that I feel really happy with and I'm living somewhere I really love and I'm doing something that I really have that allows me to live the life that I love. That's beautifully said. Uh, Thank you. I mean, you nailed it. In in a previous episode, I talked to a young gentleman who's traveling around the world surfing and also um, shedding light through documentaries on social issues. And he kind of made a good point where to live this lifestyle that we want, we have to kind of adjust, stay flexible and and create a work environment where we have a lot of different irons in the fire that bring a little bit of income stream in at various times to keep ourselves afloat, obviously, but also give us that flexibility to hit the road when it's time. And it sounds like you kind of 
got that dialed. Well, trying, trying to, but I think, I think definitely flexibility is key. And I also think like a lot of the times we carry a lot of ego. Um, and that's something that, that definitely ties in with, with all the yoga. And I think you've really just got to let things go and do things that work for you. It doesn't matter what other people think. You know, I, I have a, um, a degree in a master's degree in engineering mathematics. So I think the fact that I nanny work in a shop and set up weddings, I think probably shocks some people that know me from, from here. Um, not people I'm close to, they know what I'm like, but, um, you know, it's, it's really doing things very differently and, and thinking, you know, I'm happy doing these things. I don't mind that they're not groundbreaking or I'm not doing something that's, that's very high up and I'm not earning lots of money. As long as, as long as it helps you live the life that you, that you want to live, then that's the important thing. I think the thing that I'd like to change for me going forward in the future is I'd probably like to do something that's a little bit more meaningful. I mean, you're talking about this, um, other person that you spoke to who, who did documentaries on social issues. I think if you're doing something and you're doing your little bit for the world, I think you can really sit happily in your environment and think, I'm really doing something worthwhile. Um, and I think if I can find sort of dig my teeth into something that makes me feel like I'm making a small difference, however small it is, that'll be the point where I've reached that sort of peak point in happiness and sorting my life out. And Mm -hmm. I guess part of the reason why I started with Philippa is, is I didn't really know how to do something meaningful. Um, and, and this really, I lost my, my dad to cancer, um, around the same time that I met Nathan. And that really threw me into this sort of turmoil where I felt, I am just not doing anything meaningful and, and being with my dad through that time was the most meaningful, selfless, um, probably the best person I've ever been was during that time. And it's something that I strive to get back to. And there was a time where I felt quite lost afterwards and I felt like nothing meant anything, you know, any, all of my qualifications or all of my work experience really meant nothing. And I guess that's sort of why I ended up doing something with Philippa because I've always been, I guess you would sort of class me as a feminist, but um, I've always felt that it's important that women have their place in the world and especially women in the surf industry. I, I think they really do take kind of a bit of a blow from from this, the difference between the sexes in terms of advertising, sponsorship. I know uh, the World Surf League are putting a lot more contests um what what the what the winnings the the contest winnings uh, definitely are a lot more equal these days than they were and there's a lot more time spent on where the women are competing and I guess I thought if I could try and get Philippa the sponsorship she needed to do what she needed to get on the world tour without her having to do you know soft porn shoots for Stab magazine and kind of you know prance around in in a cheeky bikini uh under the shower because she rips i mean she seriously rips like like i don't know i'm gobsmacked every time i see photos and watch her surf like she's so powerful and and her air game like just gets better and better and better and and she doesn't need to do any of that and and i guess the point is i thought maybe maybe if we can do it without 
the stuff that most of the girls have to do. Maybe we can say, look, you know, we did it without doing that. Everybody can. And she's such a good role model for people in the area coming up. You know, everybody really looks up to Philippa and she, she really lives up to that good, solid role model. You know, she's the kind of per- person that you want your, your girls looking up to. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that's an important part. And it's only a tiny thing, but it's somehow helped to give me a little bit of meaning. Nice. Nice. You have a little project or not a little project, sorry, but you have a project called Salty Lips. What's that about? Okay. So, um, I have to admit it has taken a bit of, a bit of a backseat at the moment with sort of trying to set our life up in Australia. And, um, it was kind of hard to keep it up whilst we were traveling in the van, because we just had such little Wi-Fi during the trip. But um, Salty Lips was born um, at the beginning of my trip in Central America. And I'd spent four years working mainly in London um, and dreaming of trips, like really just – and all I could think about was where I was going to go, what I was going to do when I eventually stepped out of this this life that I was living and the people that inspired me the most were the girls that I'd met traveling previous to starting these jobs. Um, uh, one of them being your friend, India, another being a friend, an Irish friend of mine, Rosary, Sarah. I mean, I could, I could go on and name Shannon, name a load of these girls who I would just trawl through their Facebooks and just look at them surfing incredible waves all over the world and doing all these amazing things to make, a life around water. Um, so I guess it was my way of, of telling people about my journey, but also telling people about the girls that had inspired me to actually live the life that I, I now live. And it was a women's surf blog, um, that was kind of the unsung heroes of female surfing. So not the pros, not the people that get paid to do this, the people who just love being in the water, love surfing and have gone, this is what I want my life to be like. And, you know, blood, sweat and tears have made it happen. Um, and it really, it was a real passion project and it, 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 it sort of took off and, and in a way that I never expected it to. And I had it rolling for a good couple of years and it's still, every time I think about it, it makes me sad that I let it slide, but I will get it back on track. Uh, I have a platform uh, sitting offline at the moment where we, I've had a bit of a rethink and a redo and kind of tried to step it up a little bit. So at some point when I when I get the time, that'll go back online and, and hopefully continue my original sort of dream of, of telling people's stories and putting down my adventures. So, yeah, anyone that wants to go and check it out, it's, um, it still exists. It's just a little bit out of date. Nice. All right. Well, is there a blog or someplace that maybe somebody could kind of come find out more about you and your adventures and some of the things that you're passionate about or any place that you feel comfortable sharing? Well, the blog, blog exists. The stories are obviously out of date and, and that's, um, www.salty-lips.com. Um, and you can find stories about the other girls on there as well. Um, there's some, some great photos, um, of female surfing and traveling. And, um, then there's also the, um, at surf salty lips Instagram page as well. If people want to check out some photos, um, at the moment, there's still just a lot of stuff that I'm planning on doing. Uh, so, um, I'm hoping to have some, some way I can have a platform which has everything 
that I do all in one place, which would be a lot more helpful than how things are at the moment, which is sort of all over the place. Well, nice. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing all your adventures and, and your outlook on life. I think there's a lot of actionable, useful information here and a lot of inspirational stories too, I think. Yeah, living a life in service of others can be fulfilling for a lot of people. And um, yeah, just thank you for coming on, Emma. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.